Saturday, November 26, 1983, 6.25 a.m. Six men sit in a van outside Unit 7 on the Heathrow International Trading Estate, not too far from the airport. The sun isn't fully up yet. The only illumination comes from the warehouse dock lights shining through the morning mist. This is literary color. Uh, Unit 7 doesn't look especially remarkable from the outside. It's just one more brick and steel warehouse on a trading estate that's full of them. But Unit 7 is the location of a Brinksmart storage depot. Brinksmart is a joint venture between an American security firm called Brinks and a UK company called MAT Transport. Unit 7 is, or should be, a highly secure building. It should be one of the most secure in Britain where consignments of currency from all over the world, you know, gold, other precious metals, are held while in transit. The six men in the van watch a skeleton crew of security guards arrive for the Saturday overtime shift. They are due to move a consignment of gold to Gatwick Airport, where it will then be flown to Hong Kong. The guards huddle by the side entrance of Unit 7. They stamp their feet and rub their hands and smoke cigarettes and tell dirty jokes to pass the time. Their breath steams in the frigid air. Protocol means they can't enter the depot until after 6.30am. Armed robbery is an epidemic in London at this time. There are violent firms all over the city working the pavement, forever on the prowl for vulnerable targets. So security companies like Brinks Mart are justifiably paranoid. If the guards so much as jiggle the door handle to Unit 7 or try to open a window before their shift begins, a complex system of infrared and laser sensors will be able to detect it and potentially sound an alarm. Michael Scouse is the day shift supervisor at Unit 7 and he arrives with his thermos of coffee in one hand and a cigarette in the other. He trades banter with his lads, he opens the side door at exactly 6.30. He enters the depot alone stepping into a sort of antechamber between the front door and the main warehouse. He uses a second key to turn off the night alarms and only then can the rest of his team clock on. Once they're inside, he rearms the security sensors and unlocks the door to the warehouse. He's noticed, however, that only four of the five lads who volunteered for the shift have arrived. A guard called Tony Black is either late or, with it being Saturday morning, more likely he's about to call in sick. The six men in the van are cold and wired. They wear black raincoats over black suits. They wear trilby hats and ski masks. They hold sawn-off shotguns and pistols. They have cans of petrol and zippo lighters. They watch the guards disappear into the warehouse and they wait a little bit longer because this is not quite the right time. Their inside man still hasn't arrived. The six men are expecting to find as much as three million pounds in Spanish pesetas in the safe inside the warehouse. This job has been an open secret in the London underworld for weeks, even months. It was planned by Brian Robinson and Mickey McAvoy. They were tipped off to the job by Tony Black, the late security guard. Robinson lives with Black's sister, so the six men continue to wait in their van. They wait for Tony to arrive and there are a few nervous exchanges. If he doesn't show, if he calls in sick, then the crew will have to call this job off. They hold on a few more minutes, and here comes Tony now, hurrying across the car park, looking hungover and badly put together and twitchy. 
Now finding lads for this job has been a little bit harder than expected because things are changing. The Supergrass system has led to high profile informants snitching on their former partners. Trust is dwindling in the robbery trade as a result and working the pavement is increasingly seen as a mugs game as the more sophisticated and forward-thinking firms move into drugs and from there money laundering and white-collar crime. What's about to happen here will accelerate that trend and change not just organised crime in Britain but the face of London itself. Inside the depot the guards filter into the staff room, they sip tea, they smoke cigarettes. Tony Black rings the doorbell to Unit 7. Michael Scouse lets him in, rolling his eyes at Black's rumpled uniform and scattergun apologies and excuses. And then Tony Black says he needs to take a piss. So Scouse shrugs and heads up to the control room. Tony Black really does need to take a piss, by the way. His nerves are shredded. And then once he's done, he sneaks back to the side door of Unit 7, opens it, and gives a pre-agreed signal. He joins Scouse in the control room. In the staff room, the day shift has just begun planning the Gatwick trip when the first of the armed robbers kicks open the door and orders them to get on the floor. The robber pistol whips one of the guards for hesitating and then the rest of his crew rush inside. They are a blur of aggression and threats and shouts and screams and guns and ski masks. They are fast and ruthless and extremely well drilled. They know exactly what to do and where to be. They tape four of the guards' mouths shut. They bind the guards' wrists and ankles with rope. Cloth sacks are placed over their heads. The robbers name each of the guards in turn and recite their home addresses. The message is clear. One man is left behind to keep an eye on the guards and monitor the police frequencies on a handheld radio. The rest rush the control room and grab Black and Scouse. Scouse is brought to the staff room and the robbers force another guard called Robin Risley to his feet. Scouse and Risley at this point are doused with petrol and then the robbers hold up zipper lighters and tell them, if you fuck around, if you try to be a hero, we are going to burn you to death. Scouse and Risley have been singled out because they are the only two guards who have keys and know the unique access codes needed to open the vaults downstairs and also unlock the roll-up shutter door to the warehouse loading bay and various other electronic locks and alarms that might impede an armed robber with dreams of, you know, retirement in Marbella. Only two people entering these codes simultaneously can negate this complex array of security measures. Scouse and Risley are marched down to the vault. They both notice how much the robbers already know about the security systems and the layout of Unit 7. They get through the first few security doors easily enough, but once they hit the three safes inside the vault, they have a problem. While Scouse knows his half of the code, Risley is drawing a blank. Now these codes are changed every week and new ones had been issued just two days before. Risley has them in his diary, but his diary is at home and the adrenaline shock of the robbery has wiped them clean from his memory. And adding to the pressure here is that Brinksmart trains their guards to run this exact ploy on armed robbers in order to stall for time while police arrive. So Risley is in a hellacious bind here because while he's actually telling the truth, he really has forgotten these codes, the gangsters knowing Brinksmart protocol, they aren't buying it. So they stab Risley in the hand they light matches and hold them near his face. They say they'll cut off his dick if he can't remember the code in five, four, three, 
two, one. None of this does anything to jog his memory. And for a few minutes, there's a tense silence and the gears are almost audibly whirring in the gangsters' heads. And then finally, one of them notices the barrels and stacked boxes sitting on pallets all around the room. And he asks Scouse what's in the barrels. Scouse tells him, scrap silver and palladium sponge. So the robber asks, what's in the boxes? And Scouse debates internally for a moment. And then he says, gold. There are, in fact, 76 boxes filled with a total of 6,840 gold ingots. On opening one of the boxes, the robbers erupt into euphoric cheers. But then they have immediate questions. How do we get this out of here? How do we shift it once we are back at the lockup? Who knows someone who knows someone who can take care of it? It's decided the first question is all they need to concern themselves with for the time being. They have Scouse and Risley roll up the loading bay shutters, they use the warehouse forklifts to load up the van that they arrived in, and one of them is dispatched to return with a second van to take the other half of the loot. In all, they steal £250,000 in traveller's checks, about 1,000 carats in diamonds, some barrels of platinum and silver, and three tons of gold belonging to Johnson Mathy bankers. Before they leave Unit 7, they loosen the guards' restraints. They douse Scouse and Risley with water to dilute the petrol. They threaten to kill anyone who raises the alarm. And then they cheerfully wish the day shift a Merry Christmas and leave. They really did that. The six men who actually pulled off the heist at Unit 7 are footnotes in their own story, really. Three of them were arrested within a matter of days after Tony Black snitched them out under pressure from the flying squad. Even the gold itself isn't the main focus of this story because once it was dropped off at an anonymous lockup in South London, it became something else entirely. It became a force of nature. And in the years afterwards, as bodies piled up, superstitious London gangsters would talk about the gold being cursed. The heist became an enduring part of our national mythology. The gangsters who became accidental millionaires because a guard left his notebook at home. The stolen gold was an agent of change. The bars were melted down and sold back into the market. The profits traveled through offshore accounts and front companies and Swiss banks. The gold became real estate in Europe, in London, in America and elsewhere. The gold financed brothels and oil wells, apartment complexes and high-rise offices, ecstasy labs and coke shipments. It put new wings on private schools. It made millions for companies that only ever existed on paper in the city and the Cayman Islands. The gold made London villains newly minted members of the upper class. It hastened the development of new kinds of globe-spanning money laundering networks and the gentrification of London. It financed a thousand other shadowy schemes we will never find out about. And facilitating this was an array of characters from all levels of British society. They were gangsters and politicians. They were city bankers and met police officers. They were dirty lawyers and lifelong Freemasons. They were assisted abroad by the sons of Nazi war criminals and CIA assets, drug syndicates and the mafia. The gold and the profit it generated went places and implicated a web of players way beyond what the original six robbers could have ever imagined and changed the face of organised crime in the UK. 
Not bad for an hour's work on a Saturday morning. Good evening, perverts, and welcome to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. I did give you homework for this one, but it isn't really a film episode per se. Um, so I hope you watch The Longer Friday, and we will be discussing it a little bit here, but we're not going to be getting anywhere near as exhaustive as we did with Kill List. Um, I was ill recently, and I watched the movie to cheer myself up, and then I remembered I'd been meaning to start and intermittent ongoing series called the gangs of london to look at organized crime and politics in the uk now we won't be doing a scene by scene breakdown of the long good friday because this episode is just bigger than that so instead we're using it more as a launch pad to talk about the uk underworld in london of the 1980s and how it interacted with the british establishment as thatcherism hit this weird little island like a tsunami and I'm also a longtime Brinksmart aficionado or truther. So, you know, combining a brief look at the Long Good Friday and a discussion about the heist, I think is a perfect place to begin looking at London and the city. Uh, it's incredible how much this little gangster movie indirectly predicted. Now, my hope is the film gave you a feel, you know, for the, the heady atmosphere of London on the brink of deregulation and the, the property boom of the 1980s. But it's also, to me, it's one of the handful of actually good British gangster movies. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd say it's the best British gangster movie ever made. And you'll find a lot of people, um, myself included, and Empire Magazine, actually, who consider it one of the greatest British films of all time. And this is despite some you know obvious budget limitations, a somewhat murky plot and at times some truly appalling sound mixing. But what elevates it, you know, above just being another noirish cockney crime flick is a script, a brilliant script that draws on multiple political currents of the time and a fucking mind-blowing performance by Bob Hoskins as Harold Shand, uh, as the boss of London's underworld with, you know, delusions of grandeur. Now, Hoskins' commitment to this role and to the film is legendary. Uh, he modelled Harold on gangsters that he'd known growing up in North London. And even on days when he wasn't filming a scene, he'd still arrive on set with like, you know, coffee and tea and pastries for the cast and crew. Uh, he also got Monty Python's Eric Idle, I believe, to reach out to George Harrison and 
had handmade films finance the distribution costs, handmade films being George Harrison's uh, production company or distribution company. Hoskins was so protective of his work that he sued the American distributors when they tried to dub his voice with a different actor owing to, you know, concerns that his accent was basically indecipherable to Americans. And as we'll see, the film's themes also chime with very real concerns that Hoskins had about the way redevelopment in London was forcing working class communities out of the city. Uh, and it should be said the rest of the cast are outstanding as well, uh, especially Helen Mirren playing Harold's upper class girlfriend and sort of his consigliere, uh, Victoria. And keep an eye out for, um, I believe, Pierce Brosnan's first ever film role um, as a silent IRA hitman. Now, the screenwriter, uh, Barry uh, Keefe, he'd been a crime reporter in London and he covered, you know, like the Craze and the Richardsons, among other top firms. So he was well acquainted with how they all talked and thought and acted. And for all the, the heady political and social themes, The Long Good Friday is also frequently like lurky hilarious from like the snappy one-liners that Harold tosses out to the, to the pretentious monologues he drops on people, you know, unprompted about like London's place in the world, the journey that London is going on as the 1980s arrive and his role as well as a, a businessman. Now the opening 15 minutes, more like a throwback to the silent film era. You know, there's a dialogue-free sequence depicting a, a delivery of money by London gangsters to this remote farmhouse outside Belfast. And this quickly turns into a bloodbath. And the reasons why this is happening are left unanswered for the next hour or so. And then we see the widow of one of the dead guys from London, one of the guys who was murdered in Northern Ireland, uh, approach Jeff outside a cafe. Uh, Jeff is Harold's protege. And she spits in his face while Harold's like key muscle guy, his key enforcer, um, Razors, watches from across the street and he's kind of bewildered and suspicious, you know. Now, the first thing you'll notice is this movie has an absolutely fantastic soundtrack and it complements, you know, every single scene. And Harold has partnered with a mysterious um, American organization to develop the London Docklands. And the American organization is, of course, the mafia. Now they're visiting London to finalize this deal when bombs start exploding and key members of Harold's firm start dropping. The IRA has declared war on Harold, although for the bulk of the film, Harold has no idea why. He doesn't even know that the IRA are behind it all, you know, for the first like two thirds of the film. Now we first meet him stepping off a concord at Heathrow, which is about as meaningfully symbolic an introduction that you could, as you could hope for. And that awesome synth line is playing, you know, the one that played at the top of this show. Harold is one of the all-time great movie gangsters. He's um, from Stepney and he took over the London underworld in the late 60s or so and pacified it. And he's now pivoting to major real estate development. And there's something especially British about his, his pretensions of big business sophistication, but also this big business sophistication being basically a landlord, you know, and his tendency to get maudlin and sentimental over the, the changing face of London and worsening poverty and economic inequality in his old stomping grounds, despite his shady real estate schemes being responsible mostly for birth. And hilariously, um, 
he also refers to his crime group as the corporation. Yeah. And the key early scene is the speech he gives on the deck of his yacht to a crowd of potential investors. Ladies and gentlemen. I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman with a sense of history. And I'm also a Londoner. And today is a day of great historical significance for London. Our country's not an island anymore. We're a leading European state. And I believe that this is the decade in which London will become Europe's capital. Having cleared away the outdated, we've got mile after mile and acre after acre of land for our future prosperity. No other city in the world has got right in its centre such an opportunity for profitable progress. So it's important that the right people mastermind the new London, proven people with nerve, knowledge and expertise. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you are all here today, all trusted friends, and why Charlie and Tony are here today our American friends, to endorse the global nature of this venture. Let's hear it, ladies and gentlemen. Hands across the ocean. This film was written in late 1978 it was filmed in 1979 and it was released in 1980 and not only does it cannily anticipate the direction that london and the uk were going but harold himself is possibly the first thatcherite protagonist in british cinema you know the aspirational grasping working class lad who climbs to the top and pulls the ladder up behind him now given the presence of the ira You can also read the entire film as a confrontation between, you know, terrorism and free market capitalism and mirroring the British approach to the situation in the north of Ireland at the time. Once Harold finds out the IRA are behind the attacks on his his little empire, he refuses to engage in diplomacy or negotiation. Instead, his reaction is to try and steamroll them. And much of the delay, in fact, between filming and release, the production issues they encountered, it was due to fear that the IRA uh, would be looking to bomb any cinema showing the film. Uh, I mean, this is what the paranoia was like then. This was right at the peak of the troubles and the, the bombing campaign. So the decision to use the London Docklands as a key plot point speaks again to uh, Barry Keefe's understanding of the climate in Britain in the late 1970s. At one time, the Docklands, the docks, had been amongst the biggest in the world. And like a lot of other places in Britain, they underwent this 
huge dramatic decline after the war and obviously all the social problems that entails swept into the area. Now, the redevelopment of the Docklands, you know, what a host of British real estate investors like to call regeneration. It's facilitated in the Long Good Friday by corrupt local businessmen and police and councillors working hand in glove with crime bosses like Harold. Now, plans to redevelop the Docklands were controversial from the very beginning because they clearly favoured, you know, luxury apartment blocks and yuppie offices over the needs of locals. And two years after the Long Good Friday came out, Bob Hoskins filmed a segment for a show called Omnibus in which he, he gave a reporter a tour of the area. And everything he said then in 1982 is still true today. You know, ordinary people are pushed out to make way for an influx of concrete and glass towers that only exist because some oligarch or oil capo or hedge fund or drug dealer needs somewhere to park their money, you know. Before you say planning permission, they started putting that lot up. You mean before they actually got planning permission? Nah, they got it, right? That's not hard, is it? As long as you don't want to build houses. That's the way it seems to me, anyway. This is the end of Hayes Wharf, yeah. and it starts at London Bridge, comes all the way down here to Tower Bridge. That's 25 acres. Well, it's supposed to be the most important redevelopment area since the Great Fire. People have made fortunes, yeah, absolute fortunes. Do you remember Jim Slater? Oh, indeed, yes. Right. He once said, when I think of Hayes Wharf, I get a warm glow. Ain't surprising when you think that he made a million and a half pounds in two weeks trading in Hayes Wharf shares. Who owns all this now, Bob? It's all owned by Kuwaiti Investments. They wanted to put up two million square feet of offices all along, all along there. Yeah. Fortunately, Essel Time put the block on it, but well, they're still going to put up a lot of it. About what is it? About seven hundred and fifty thousand square feet oh. of offices, anyway. That's enough, isn't it? Oh yeah. In fact, he very clearly says at the beginning of that omnibus segment. Well, on Good Friday, there, Bob. You had that diatribe about what they were doing to London. Now, how much of that was the actor and how much of that was Bob Hoskins expressing his own beliefs? Well, I thought it was going over the top. I thought it was all sort of, you know, fairyland. But after finding out what's been going on down here, that makes, that makes a longer Friday look like a story out of Winnie the Pooh. Now, obviously, this was filmed before Brink's Matt. But shady deals and practices underpinned the Docklands project from the start. And throughout that segment, you get the sense that Bob Hoskins had to mind what he said quite often. And he could only indirectly hint at the corruption that was clearly underpinning a lot of the, the planning decisions. And the connection between local politics and organized crime in London in the Long Good Friday Nowadays, if they made this film, it would be portrayed as like a central part of the film. It would be some sort of evil that was an aberration, you know, because we've, I think we've lost our nerve in a lot of ways about portraying that kind of thing on screen. But back then, it's just portrayed as completely expected. It's, it's a normal part of doing business in the city, you know, and it's all the more stark because it's not treated as an aberration. It makes it more sort of plausible and believable. And in fact, Harold eventually ends up taking out a politician that he has on the payroll when he has two top guys from the IRA murdered near the end of the film. But I guess the question is, how real are these links between the underworld and the upperworld in Britain? You know, how big is the web of corruption that the Longer Friday and Bob Hoskins hinted at? 
Now, these are things we don't like to talk about in Britain at all. You know, the existence of mafia-type syndicates, that's for other lesser places. And if you bring it up here, you're a paranoid conspiracy theorist, you know. But we can actually get the sense of something big and vast and very dark at the center of the British establishment by turning back to the Brinksmart heist. So the immediate concern of the heist crew, once they escaped the Heathrow trading estate, of course, it was what to do with the gold. What the fuck do we do with this shit now that we've, we've got it out of the trading estate? Now, these were not particularly sophisticated men, you know? I mean, they make a living putting a gun to people's heads and ordering them to empty tills and armored cars. So getting the gold into the market so it could be turned into liquid capital and invested, that was going to require um, sophistication and finesse. Mickey McAvoy turned to some associates who did business with Kenneth Noy. Now, Kenneth Noy was from Kent. He got his start very early. He ran protection rackets at school and he sold stolen bikes to fences. And by the early 80s, he ran his own very lucrative fencing operation and he was an expert in gold and we could think of him as middle management you know he's not afraid to use guns and violence as we'll as we'll fucking see but he's relatively low profile and rarely involved in street activities now within a couple of days of the heist ray and honor Paulston, this couple in bath they tipped off the police that a neighbor of theirs a guy called john palmer was smelting gold in a hut in his back garden they found this very suspicious given the heist had only happened uh, recently. Now, they all lived in this very wealthy neighborhood in Bath, and Ray Paulston was expecting a very nice cash reward for his information. And when the cops arrived, they inspected the hut. They agreed it certainly was strange and suspicious. And then they phoned the Paulstons a few days later to inform them that they couldn't act on the tip-off because the smelting hut was two yards outside their jurisdiction. Now, Palmer, like Kenneth Noy, was a face. We call them faces here. These are like known and respected gangsters. And Palmer also dealt in gold, legal and not, just like Noy. And the Paulston suspicions were correct. Palmer was smelting some of the Brinksmart bullion. That's how quickly things were already moving. The police declining to investigate because the hut was two yards outside their jurisdiction. It's a part of the story now that it's been turned into farce over time. It's like classic British job worths, you know, but there are reasons to believe that something else was actually going on. And we're going to circle back to this. Kenneth Noy had enlisted John Palmer to help him dispose of the Brinksmark gold. And the way it worked is that Noy would smelt it at his end 
and he'd mix in copper to further disguise where it came from. And then he'd send it from Kent to Bath where Palmer would re-smelt it again, you know, just to make sure the track was covered. And doing it this way meant that they weren't just able to sell the gold back into the market. In fact, Johnson Mathie ended up buying back a lot of the gold without realizing it. Um, but, you know, by mixing it in with gold coming from other sources and cooking the books in the jewelry stores that they owned, they were also able to avoid VAT, which is value-added tax for non-Britishers. Now, this was a complicated bit of accounting fraud, and it was increasingly popular at the time, but it's very dry. It would take too much time to get into here. Uh, what it illustrates for our purposes is that organized crime networks in Britain were adopting increasingly sophisticated methods of disguising their income and avoiding tax. And a lot of this was in part because of the deregulatory policies of Thatcher's government. And in tandem with this, there's a very widespread shift in Ganland at the time from armed robbery to drug dealing because the profits from drug dealing were so astronomical compared to spending weeks and months sweating over bank heists and post office robberies and armored car jobs. So suddenly the firms who moved into the more lucrative drug trade, once they had a pile of money from selling drugs, they found themselves operating in a gray area between legal and illegal when it came to the process of reinvesting these profits from crime and cleaning the money. This is the perfect Thatcherite environment. This is how basically all of her government operated anyway. I mean, we've talked before about their involvement and connection to things like Iran-Contra, Lysirkli, financing the, uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and so on. So the police had very little idea how to investigate money laundering and they were only really interested in nicking people for violence anyway. So if you were a drug dealer at this time, as long as you could disguise the source of your money and you could keep the killings to the bare minimum so it didn't attract the police's attention, once you had that money, you were just about okay. It was just a matter of getting rid of it, finding somewhere to invest it and park it. So Brinksmart hastened and turbocharged the development of white-collar networks because it necessitated a gangland crash course in money laundering on a scale that had never really been seen before in Britain. And this brought firms deeper into the orbit of many more, what they call straight goers. You know, these are professionals who work in policing, banking, finance, and real estate. Now, as Jimmy Holmes, he was a gangster. I think he, if he's still alive, I think he still may be a gangster, but I'm not sure. He's the author of um, two books, Judas Pig and the Charity Commission. And he says this. The background to um, sort of criminal activity in, in, in your era when you first came in Basically, most villains were earning their money on the pavement, what we call going on the pavement, which is armed robbery, or protection, rackets, violence, robbing other criminals. But uh, around about, they were dishing out such, so much heavy bird uh, during the mid-80s, they were using the supergrass system. A lot of armed robbers got caught and got put away down to supergrasses. And they were the dishing out 25 recommended, 25 year recommended sentences. So people looking at that, us coming up, although we did get involved on the pavement, we, t we, we knew that there was no future in it. It was a mugs game. Uh, puff started to be smuggled into the country. When I say puff, I mean hashish, all from mostly from North Africa. Would come from North Africa, through Spain, through Holland, into, this, into, this, into England. So um, there, then 
we saw how much money there was to be earned in the puff game. So the plan was, if you had a bit of work on the pavement where you got, say, 250 or 300 grand or more, anything up to a mil, then you would invest that into other businesses that were going to bring you more money. So basically, we moved into the puff game by... We'd we done it by actually fucking other main, mainline drug main uh, big drug dealers at the time. So what would happen was we'd find out about their loads when they were coming in, and we'd hijack them. So one load we took off of uh, one character called The Bug, who was a major league player at the time. I th we, took, we, we carved up about 1.5 mil off of his load. All we'd done was wait. We knew when his transport was coming in because we had the driver. We knew the driver. And uh, we, when, when, when it came into the warehouse, we just went in, laid the driver and his boys down, you know, with guns, laid them down, wrapped them up, and then just drove his lorry away with the gear. So there we walked away for about two hours' work. We had about 1.5 mil. Well, it's a lot of money today, but go back to, like, 1985, that, that's, that's a real big amount of money. So then <clears throat> we would want to invest that into other businesses so that we had a regular income. Now, at the time, <clears throat> we're talking around... Uh, the 1980s, Jimmy Holmes was actually partnered with someone who's now a, a major figure in organized crime in Britain, a guy called David Hunt. We'll be talking about him in shows to come, you know, over the next couple of years. However, if I may be so bold, it wasn't just the complexity of underworld money laundering schemes that left the police like unable or unwilling to investigate major organized crime and in particular aspects of the, the Brinks Matt heist. You know that strange story about the cops refusing to act on the information that about the smelting operation in Palmer's Hut in Bath? Well, that gets even stranger when you learn that nobody was ever sent to take a statement from the Polstons. The police visit was only briefly mentioned in that day's report, and they wouldn't step foot on Palmer's property for another year and a half, at which point... He'd already closed down his operation and cleared the hut out. In fact, he wasn't even in the country at that point. He left a couple of days before. When the flying squad did finally discover Kenneth Noy's connection to Brink's map, they were puzzled at how little information about such an obviously major player was in the system. Now, why was this? Well, by the late 1970s, Kenneth Noy was on the police's payroll as an informant because he cut a deal with Scotland Yard. Um, so he snitched out drug smugglers, uh, other fences, armed robbers, gun dealers, that type of character. Now, his role as a snitch was an open secret in the London underworld, and it was understood or believed that he was untouchable and that killing him could provoke a massive response from the Met Police. And he was also rumoured to have a Conservative MP on his payroll, although the name is redacted in reports. I have been given a name, but this guy is still alive and he's quite active, and British libel laws being what they are, you know. Some rumours also have Noy in bed with MI5, like passing along tip-offs about IRA drugs for guns deals with London villains. And beyond all that, way beyond all that, Kenneth Noy was a Freemason. Now, it's sort of impossible to overstate how insane and important this part of the story is, because not only was he proposed for membership of Hammersmith's Lodge by two police officers, he eventually became the worshipful master of it. 
And in his book, Inside the Brotherhood, Martin Short says that after Noy was sent down for his part in handling the Brinksmart bullion in the mid-80s, Masons at this lodge, many of them police and gold dealers, naturally, uh, they continued to pay his membership dues for another two years. And this is despite him having stabbed a cop called John Fordham to death in his garden during a botched surveillance operation on his house in 1985. Uh, he got off with a self-defense plea. Uh, he was sent down a year later for handling the stolen gold, though. Now, so extensive was Noy's influence in the Met Police that when the Flying Squad was initially putting together the team to investigate uh, his role in Brinksmart in 1984, they had to sweep their offices for bugs and listening devices once they got wind that he was probably a mason and they had to keep sweeping for bugs, you know, on a weekly basis after that. DCI um, Brian Boyce, he worked the Brinksmart investigation. He fucking hated Freemasons. He knew what shifting that much gold would entail, you know, the kinds of global networks that it would have to connect to, to make the laundering operation work. And this is what would become known as the gold conduit. Now, he'd encountered Masonic cops time and again in his career, and they could always be relied on to torpedo investigations into other Masons, or protected gangsters, or members of the establishment. And it was for this reason that he initially declined the job um, before accepting it. So after Noy was released from prison, this is after he got sent down for handling the, the Brinksmart loot in the 1990s, he was convinced that Masonic cops were going to put a hit out on him to keep him quiet about what he knew about the gold conduit network. Oh, this is what he claims anyway. And in 1995, he wound up stabbing a kid called Stephen Cameron to death on the M25 in what he says was a moment of confusion and paranoia. Now, even at this point, when you'd think that most of Ken's pals would have just abandoned him, the Cameron investigation files were restricted to just 12 senior officers, and they were given round-the-clock protection from other fucking Met Police cops while they put together this murder case against Kenneth Noy. One of Noy's main police contacts was DC John Donald, who tipped him off to ongoing investigations and warned him to pull out of an impending coke deal with the mafia in Miami in 1994 because the FBI were all over it. So as we've seen in Italy and elsewhere, becoming a member of a Masonic Lodge offers excellent networking opportunities and access to protection for gangsters. You know, we've discussed this time and time again. Masonic influence in the British establishment is something that a lot of people here get very squeamish about discussing. Um, I've had to insert disclaimers whenever they crop up because there is this innate sense that people will take you less seriously once you start talking about the handshake boys, you know. But you'd be mad to think, as we've said before, You'd be mad to think that boys clubs where gangsters and spooks and bankers and cops and aristocrats all find themselves getting drunk together and forming lifelong friendships won't generate the odd criminal conspiracy from time to time. You know what I mean? Or enable those people to fall into habitual patterns of corrupt behavior. So Freemasonry in Britain and its potential for corruption is an extremely under-discussed part of life here. Um, and partly this is because of the innate secrecy of masonry, and partly this is because of just straight-up denial that there's even a problem. 
In 2001, the Met Police commissioned a report into corruption called Operation Tiberius, and this report looked at different aspects of official corruption. Tiberius found that corrupt officers had forged links to organized crime groups and supplied them with information and tip-offs in exchange for money and drugs. And one of the major ways that gangsters and cops met each other, as stated in Tiberius, was through Masonic lodges. The Independent reported on drug trafficking operations that had been set up by Met police officers working with uh, gangsters. Quote, One corrupt detective chief inspector who was identified by Tiberius sold his car to a known criminal who was also a protected informant. The deal had been arranged by another corrupt officer, the informant's handler, who was identified by Tiberius as raping, blackmailing, and encouraging the informant to facilitate the importation of heroin. The Tiberius report does not identify any action taken by the Met against the serving officer for his behavior. And so inevitably, you know, Tiberius dramatically understated the scale of the problem and made it seem as if um, Met police corruption was a recent aberration. But even then, they waved it away using the old one bad apple argument that we've seen the Met use time and time again. But in fact, way back in 1969, the Times recorded a detective describing the existence of a firm inside a firm in the Met police. Um, this was a nexus of high-ranking police officials, London gangsters, and establishment figures, and they were all involved to some degree or another in the sex trade, in Soho, armed robbery, and protection rackets. So Scotland Yard's response, you know, naturally enough, was to place the Times journalists who worked on the story under round-the-clock surveillance and harass them and intimidate them. And then in 1972... Uh, a fellow called Robert Mark became Met Commissioner and he set up a new unit called A-10 to investigate corrupt police. And he went so far as to describe the Met as the most routinely corrupt organization in Britain. He determined that the supergrass system um, where, you know, the police recruited informants from gangland who were very highly placed in underworld networks... He determined that while this had helped to lock up some pretty dangerous criminals, it was also another route into the Met Police for, for savvier gangsters. So put simply, informants were using the supergrass system to eliminate the competition and they were creating their own crime empires out in the resulting vacuums, you know. And the Met were happy to accept the information and payoffs that these guys gave them and make headline grabbing arrests and then use their influence to protect their snitches from arrest and prosecution. Kenneth Noy is an example of how this works in practice. And this eventually led to Operation Countryman, which was a massive corruption investigation that was fucked from the very beginning. Because the idea had been to use police outside the Met to build cases against dirty London cops. But the Met just closed ranks, told them to fuck off, you know. So favors were called in through Masonic networks and the anti-corruption investigators and witnesses were openly threatened and intimidated. And a lot of the officers involved in the worst of the dirt, they were tipped off in advance and they either quit the force or just straight up destroyed evidence that implicated them in crimes. And at the end of this, there was a total of two convictions that were secured, but this firm inside a firm, it was just left untouched. A key player here, uh, was a lawyer called Michael Relton, who was another mason who specialized in defending police accused of corruption or 
misconduct. Now, Jake Arnett, he describes the situation in London at the start of the 1980s, right on the eve of the Brinksmart heist. Thusly, quote, politically, the move to monetarism and an unbridled free market meant that there were many more chances for the unscrupulous to make easy money. Financially, it was hard to see what was bent or legal anymore. And in an atmosphere of division and social unrest, the police became more powerful and were subject to less scrutiny as officers were given free reign to deal with inner city riots and industrial disputes organized crime began to move into narcotics. Just as the illicit pornography trade provided both a moral panic and an incentive for bent and greedy policemen in the 1970s, so drugs became the new variant for the corruption of the police in the 1980s. The press was also changing. Led by the Rupert Murdoch empire, there was a move to break the print unions and to deregulate itself. The old days of Fleet Street were coming to an end, and with that came a managed decline in proper investigative journalism. What replaced it used, and indeed enhanced, those same methods of investigation that but now began to deploy them as a form of control and entrapment as it sought to assert ever more dangerous levels of political influence. In the midst of this, came a spectacular crime that provided a catalyst for all these elements. The, the whole idea of armed robberies is you've got to be, you know, you've got to know what you, you know, you want used readies. It's the same as the Brinks mat. See, I know the people on the Brinks mat and I know the armed robbers on the Brinks mat. Now, when they went, when, they, when that bit of work was first punted around, that was punted around to us. People came to us because we were dealing with, with villains in South London, where that came from. And I knew one of the robbers on the bit of work. And they came to us and they said, listen, there's, there's 3.5 mil cash in, a, in a, 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 a shed at Heathrow. But everyone was talking about this bit of work. Everyone was talking about, yeah, we're gonna, they're going to take this. We said, no, we're not interested. They didn't even know about the gold. When they went there, they only wanted to nick the, what they should have done. If they'd have just nicked the reddies and left the gold, it wouldn't have come on top. But they didn't even have a van. They went back and got a van and nicked all the gold and it came on top. Brinksmart investigation was subject to pressure and interference by uh, corrupt Met police from the beginning, but the murder of John Fordham, the cop, led to a massive reorganization. Brinksmart effectively triggered a mini civil war inside the Met police at all levels, you know, between the handful of like honest cops like Brian Boyce and his supporters and the this firm inside a firm that wanted to restrict the police's role to catch in just the six heist men. Uh, who were mostly disposable anyway, and recovering the gold bullion that was still left, you know, because by this point, what had already been smelted down was generating quite a lot of money. Uh, Brian Boyce was put in charge of a, a special task force, and he had a remit to investigate where the money was going. Now, this was something he'd been pushing for from the beginning, and he'd been refused. 
because it meant opening up a, a literal world of crooked finance and money laundering and elite level players. The establishment would have to investigate itself. Now, if you've seen The Wire, uh, you'll know why this is. You'll remember that Lester Freeman says, You follow drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers. But you start to follow the money and you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you. The Met higher-ups were extremely anxious where Boyce's investigation was going to take him and his team. Now, we've already mentioned how disposing of this much gold and laundering the profits was entirely new, mostly, to the underworld, on this scale at least. It didn't take them long to figure out the basics, though. Uh, there was a very strange incident that happened about a month after the heist. Uh, for an example of how far and how fast the gold traveled. About a month after the heist, four Italians and an Austrian were arrested in Vienna with 10 gold bars that had serial numbers matching the, the stolen Brinksmart ingots. Now, the cops in Vienna, at first, they announced the gold was Brinksmart. And then they said the bars were actually sophisticated counterfeits, but they never explained how the gang would have known what the serial numbers on the stolen bars were or why they'd bother counterfeiting them for the reward money when if they've gone this far already they could just sell it themselves you know so methinks the viennese coppers here may have stopped by a smelter at some point between finding the gold and changing their story so when brian boyce first interviewed kenneth noy after he'd killed uh, fordham noy offered him a million pound payoff to drop the case and said commander ray adams was a close friend of his Ray Adams was the detective who had initially recruited Noy as an informant. Noy gave Boyce uh, a Masonic handshake at the end of the interview, and Boyce knew a fair amount about Masonic codes and rituals and the like, so he responded in kind, and Noy came to believe that he was on the square, you know, as the Masons call it. But then Boyce reported the event and named Ray Adams as a potential threat to the investigation. This is very reminiscent of other similar encounters between corrupt Freemasons and police that they mistakenly believe to be members um, of a lodge. Now, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse issued a report called Children in the Care of Lambeth Council, and Section H5 is titled simply Freemasons, quote, as part of this investigation, we considered whether there was evidence of Freemasons influencing investigations into sexual abuse of children in Lambeth Council's care. The inquiry received evidence that Donald Hosegood, who was prosecuted for sexually abusing children in his care at Shirley Oaks, waved a Masonic handbook when he was arrested. D.I. Simon Molly accepted that this was clearly done in an attempt to influence the arresting officers. While the records from the time show that, in D.I. Morley's words, it held no truck with the arresting officers, it is of concern that Hosegood had the impression that being a Freemason would assist him. The terms of reference for the 1995 report by Elizabeth Appleby QC referred to the extent of Freemasonry within Lambeth. Elizabeth Appleby QC exchanged correspondence with the Grand Secretary of the Freemasons. She commented in her report, Quote within a quote, during the course of my inquiry, I have received numerous allegations as to the cause of Lambeth's problems, including the influence of Freemasonry, a mafia exerting pressure over the officers, and a pornographic ring holding officers and members to ransom. I have received no evidence to substantiate these allegations. 
But the problem with the in-crews approach here is, I think you'll see it's pretty obvious. So they're looking at the extent of Masonic influence over the Lambeth Abuse Network, right? But the investigating officials are submitting the names of suspects to the Grand Lodge and relying on the Grand Lodge to confirm whether or not these people are Freemasons. And Freemasonry generally is known as an incredibly secretive um, organization. So what's the likelihood that the Grand Lodge is actually going to admit it has dozens and dozens of pedophiles in the membership and they run what amounts to a child abuse mafia? It's fucking stupid, isn't it? It's not going to happen. And so it went with like investigations into corrupt Met police who were involved in other uh, dirty jobs, you know. It happens time and again. They All they do is they just give a list of suspected corrupt Masonic cops to the Grand Lodge and then they just let the Grand Lodge say either yay or nay. And invariably the Grand Lodge just says, oh no, they're not members. It's ridiculous. So anyway, uh, Kenneth Noy, he wasn't the only Brinksmart player being protected by police. So we already discussed John Palmer and his smelting hut but there's now good reason to believe that his network of contacts inside the Met was at least as big as Kenneth Noyes and probably bigger. Um, and added to this is Michael Relton, the lawyer that we mentioned before. He suddenly acquired a taste for property development in the mid 80s and he quit his legal practice. And then working with Noy and Palmer, Relton founded Selective Estates in 1984. Now, Selective Estates was a front because Relton had set up a network of offshore accounts and shell companies, and he used these to clean the money from the Brinksmart heist, you know, the money from selling the gold on. And then he invested this money in the London Docklands using the Thatcher government's new right-to-buy scheme to flip council buildings, you know, houses, whatever. The smelting operation had been so efficient that by 1985, it's estimated that anybody, anybody wearing gold jewelry in Britain was wearing Brinks mat. That's how they used to say it. So in other words, most of the gold was gone. And what was left instead was money flowing through Byzantine global financial networks becoming harder to trace by the hour. Kenneth Noy, he was given 14 years for laundering the Brinksmart gold money, and he was released early in 1994. In 1985, John Palmer's property was finally raided, and somewhat conveniently, he flew to Tenerife with his wife Marnie and their kids two days before the cops showed up, which left two of his key guys, Garth Chappell and Terry Patch, uh, to be arrested. Palmer's jewellery company, um, Scadlin, it had obviously been cooking the books to evade VAT and neither uh, Chapel or Patch could explain why they were selling millions in smelted gold for the same price that they'd bought it. And Palmer was hiding out in Tenerife at this point. Uh, he sold off his UK assets and then he set up a timeshare company which basically defrauded people out of millions. And similar to Relton, he began to set up dozens and dozens of offshore companies to disguise all this money that he was making. And then he chipped it to South America before being deported back to the UK. And incredibly and pretty impressively, in 1987, he got off with processing the stolen Brinksmark gold, even though he admitted handling it. And he'd named his two new Rottweiler guard dogs uh, Brinks and Matt. Still got off with it. 
Although I've also read that Mickey McAvoy called his two Rottweilers Brinks and Matt. And I've heard that Kenneth Noy called his two Rottweilers Brinks and Matt. So I don't know quite what to believe about that part of it. However, maybe it's not so incredible, you know, when you remember the Met firm inside a firm and Palmer's considerable pull with Masonic cops. Maybe it's not that big a mystery why he got off. And Relton, meanwhile, he'd linked up with a, a property developer called Gordon Parry. And between them, they set to work cleaning tens of millions through banks in Switzerland and Liechtenstein. And something worth pointing out here is that the, the original heist crew who handed the gold off to be sold on, they were relying on guys as crooked as them to keep their word. You know, that they'd only take the underworld equivalent of a, a service charge or a processing fee for going to the trouble of smelting the gold, selling it into the market and laundering the, the profits. Noy, Relton, Palmer and their partners, they most definitely did not do this. Uh, Palmer, he built a fortune worth about £300 million off the back of selling the bullion. I think he was on the Sunday Times rich list at one point. He was like one slot below the fucking queen. And while three of the robbery crew did get away, like we've said, the other three were sent down for a combined 56 years. So the rest of the crew were never caught. And when Mickey McAvoy tried to cut a deal with the cops, you know, uh, so he wanted to give back the relatively tiny cut of the profits he'd received up to that point in exchange for a reduced sentence. He found out that someone had already been dispatched to raid his stash and take that money. So in exchange for his silence, Kenneth Noy finally gave the okay for Relton to buy McAvoy's girlfriend a mansion in Essex and McAvoy agreed to keep stum, as they say. So disposing of the Brinks Mac gold, it also entailed calling in favours from earlier generations of London gangsters, which is where Charlie Wilson comes in. Charlie Wilson was one of the, the great train robbers. He was given millions in Brinks Mac profits to launder in mid-1984. So he flew from Marbella, where he was already running a drug smuggling ring, uh, to Colombia. And in Colombia, he set up a two-year cocaine distribution deal with an option for renewal with Pablo fucking Escobar, right? Which further, understandably, further expanded the drug business in the UK. And from the beginning... Charlie Wilson was double dealing and losing thousands here and there. The total was about three million pound. And finally, in 1990, his partners got tired of his bad bookkeeping and they had him shot to death in front of his wife, who was also his cousin. So an associate of Kenneth Noyes and a gangland money launderer called Nick Whiting, he was shot dead the same year as Charlie Wilson. And these are just two of a string of gold dealers, financiers, police informants, all connected to the heist who were murdered or disappeared in the years afterwards. And these are just two of a string of gold dealers or financiers or armed robbers or police informants connected to the heist who were murdered or disappeared in the years afterwards. And these killings continued well into the 21st century. Uh, there was a snitch and gun runner with information about Kenneth Noy, uh, Alan DiCabral, he was killed in the year 2000 by a professional hitman. And even John Palmer, Goldfinger, as he'd been called, uh, the boss of a huge syndicate with police protection, he was shot dead in 2015. This is what they call the Brinks-Matt curse, you know. 
But the strangest, scariest deaths in this story, they aren't usually connected to Brinks Ma. But I think they should be. And this brings us to Daniel Morgan, who was a private investigator who founded a firm called Southern Investigations, and he co-owned this firm with one Jonathan Reese. Now, Reese would go on to be implicated in the News of the World phone hacking scandal in 2011. Morgan had found himself being frozen out of the private investigation firm as he began amassing evidence of massive undisclosed corruption in the Met Police, and Reese took a job behind Morgan's back. This job was transporting money in a security van for an auction firm that Morgan suspected was from an armed robbery or otherwise the proceeds of some kind of crime. Reese used a Met cop called Sid Fillory as backup on this job. Now, Fillory was a detective sergeant, and after having a drink with Reese in a pub in London in March of 87, Daniel Morgan was found dead in the car park of that pub with an axe planted in his skull. His wallet was untouched, but a notebook that he carried everywhere with him was missing, being torn out of his pocket. Witnesses had seen him the day before uh, having an argument with Sid Fillory in that pub. Now, this led to a series of compromised investigations and trials and inquiries into the conduct of the Met Police, and Sid Fillory played a major role in screwing up the investigation and tampering with evidence. The Met dragged this merry farce out way into the 2010s. This is a favorite technique of the British establishment. Drag these inquiries out, you know, grind them down. And the IRPC, this is the uh, uh, Police Complaints Commission, it, it finally concluded a review of an independent panel report in 2021, I think, and it found no new avenues for investigation which could now result in either criminal or disciplinary proceedings. And this is despite the report acknowledging that Cressida Dick, who was the then head of the Met uh, two, three years ago, she'd breached professional standards. Now, Cressida Dick basically functions as a, a cleanup artist for the British establishment, one of many that they have. Prior to heading up the Met, she held this mysterious role in security at the Foreign Office. We've discussed the Foreign Office before, your antenna should be perking. And she oversaw the farcical cover-up of the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes. She was directly named as hampering attempts to interview witnesses and whistleblowers in the Daniel Morgan case. She was also the one who gave the Met the okay to go break heads at the vigil for Sarah Everard in 2021. Sarah was the woman who was kidnapped, raped, and murdered by a Met police officer. And Cressida Dick was also held culpable after a press gagging order was finally lifted. She was held culpable for vaguely described Met police errors in the disciplinary proceedings against another rapist cop called David Carrick. Right. So one of Daniel Morgan's sources at the time of his death was a flying squad officer and a Freemason called Alan Taffy. Morgan. And this is where the Brinksmack connection really comes into focus because Taffy had worked that case and he was connected to several other players in the story. The month before Daniel Morgan was murdered, a very strange series of events took place at the top of the Met Police. This is from Byline Times, quote, February 5th, 1987 saw the end of the Wapping dispute, the last great exercise in union bashing of that decade. 
riot police had come down heavily on the picket so that not a single day's production had been lost, as the Murdoch Empire had now secured itself in a new deregulated fortress. It clearly owed a debt of thanks to the Met. And, the day after the end of the strike, there was a very curious shuffle occurring on the fifth floor of Scotland Yard. There had been much internal debate about a suitable replacement for Phil Corbett as he resigned from C11. Head of Criminal Intelligence, that's what C11 is, is a crucial appointment, and those factions that were concerned about corruption in the Met were keen that his successor should not only be beyond reproach, but also not part of the Masonic network that had so often been used by bent officers in the police service. Commander Thelma Wagstaff was the highest ranking female officer in the country and had an impeccable service record, but on being offered the top post at C11, she was told that one of the reasons for her appointment was that, as a woman, she could not belong to the all-male Brotherhood of Freemasonry. However, on the first day in her new job, to her astonishment, she was informed that she had already been replaced by another officer. Are you ready for it? The new head of C11 was Commander Ray Adams, Kenneth Noy's handler, and very definitely a Freemason. Indeed, he attended the same lodge that Taffy Holmes was now worshipful master of. They were neighbours, after all, though Adams lived in considerably more splendour in a mansion that backed onto Addington Golf Course with a lavish lifestyle that he attributed to the fact that his wife, a statuesque Norwegian model, was independently wealthy. So, Alan Taffy Holmes. Taffy had been talking up his idea to sell his information about massive police corruption to the news of the world for a quarter of a million pound. And specifically, he claimed inside knowledge of a massive scheme that a network of Met Police had cooked up with their gangland contacts at their lodges to import and distribute as much as a hundred million pounds worth of coke. And supposedly this trafficking operation it was well underway and even involved customs officials and some rumours suggest MI6 officers. It was this operation that Taffy told Daniel Morgan about just before Daniel Morgan was killed. Don't forget, Jonathan Reese has contacts with the News of the World as well and Taffy had been talking about selling a story to that paper. Additionally, it was claimed that Ray Adams acted as noise intermediary when he was trying to pay Brian Boyce that million pound bribe to drop the Brinksmart investigation. But let's think about this hundred million pound cocaine uh, deal. And now let's think about Charlie Wilson's trip to Columbia at Kenneth Noy's behest and his two year distribution deal with the Medellin cartel. So am I implying that through a complex chain of intermediaries, the Met Police was indirectly doing business with Pablo Escobar? No, but yes I am. Commander Adams then assigned Taffy a minder, and he claimed that this was out of professional concern for a colleague's mental health, and then Taffy was found dead of a shotgun blast to the chest, which was ruled a suicide. I know. I told you that Brinksmart contained multitudes.
So to bring it back to Railton and Parry, we should close out tonight by trying to piece together where just a portion of the Brinks map profits went and think about the implications of this. So to begin, let's go all the way back to 1948, when a baby called Jürgen Mossack was born to loving parents in post-war Germany. Are you scared yet? Jürgen's father, Erhard, he was an engineer with big dreams, and he'd also achieved the rank of Rottenführer in the Waffen-SS. After Erhard moved his family to Panama, he fell into work as an intelligence asset for the CIA, as you do. And we should point out that the US government, via the CIA, was instrumental in establishing Panama as an offshore haven for dark money with some of the strictest financial secrecy rules in the world. Naturally, this is perfect for funding off-the-books operations and all manner of other fun stuff, but you need money, you know, flowing in to those offshore networks in order to finance this stuff. Now, baby Jürgen grew up to be a lawyer. He worked in the city of London before heading back to Panama, and in the mid-70s, he linked up with Ramon Fonseca, and they founded Mossack Fonseca, which is a law firm and corporate service provider, or it was. It's out of business now. Now, Ramon is a bit of a renaissance man, would you believe it? In addition to being a lawyer, he's also a novelist, a poet, and a former right-wing politician connected to the uh, Panamanista party. And the firm specialized in setting up these shell companies so that the world's bankers and gangsters and oligarchs and money launderers could hide their cash. Mossack Fonseca was, of course, it was at the center of the Panama Papers leak in 2016. And just in case you've forgotten, because a lot has happened since 2016, the Panama Papers were sort of like the Epstein affair, but it revolved around dark money and finance instead of children. And just like the Epstein affair, when it emerged, that the global elite was connected to an unfathomable global system of crimes and skullduggery protected by intelligence agencies and organized crime and, you know, financial institutions. The world yawned. So Gordon Parry and Michael Relton, they'd set up dozens and dozens of shell companies by the end of 1984, and setting up more by the day. And they turned to Panama for legal counsel and financial advice. This is The Guardian, quote, Records in the Mossack Fonseca file show inquiries being made by Center Services, an offshore specialist firm in Jersey, about potential names for Panamanian companies in 1984, 12 months after the Heathrow raid. I got that wrong there. It wasn't a Heathrow raid. Um, no details were given of the person on whose behalf the inquiries were being made. A fax to Jersey regretted to say one of the preferred names, Midas Inc., seemingly a joke, was not available. The next day, the more discreet Faberian Incorporated was chosen. Under Parry's direction, but unknown to Mossack Fonseca, millions of pounds were salted in Faberian and other front companies and bank accounts in secrecy jurisdictions such as Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Jersey, and the Isle of Man. He is said to have laundered as much as 10.7 million pounds, for which he would eventually be sentenced to 10 years behind bars. With funds washing through his offshore front companies, Parry believed the laundering process complete. The cleansed money could be returned to Britain to finance legitimate property deals, unidentifiable as the proceeds of crime. 
Using offshore firms, Parry arranged deals including the purchase of land in London's fast-regenerating Docklands and some buildings formerly part of Cheltenham Ladies' College. Through one Jersey company, he bought Kathleen Meacock, girlfriend of robbery ringleader McAvoy, a Kent farmhouse, where she settled with her two Rottweilers, Brinks and Matt. See, it's... I don't know what to believe. Who was calling their fucking Rottweiler Brinks and Matt and who wasn't? That, to me, is the biggest mystery of this story. Anyway, uh, a short drive from Meacock's home, Parry used Fiberian to buy a £400,000 home for himself and his family. Gold-plated taps were installed in the bathrooms and more than £60,000 was spent on curtains for Crockham House, an isolated mock Tudor mansion set in substantial grounds in the back roads of Kent, near Chartwell, Sir Winston Churchill's former country residence. By late 1986, the authorities were catching up with Parry. In cooperation with the Jersey authorities, the Metropolitan Police froze papers held in the offices of Centre Services and took control of the two Fiberian bearer shares. Bosses at the tiny Jersey company panicked and rang Panama. This was the tip-off call that his thoughts were first linked for Berrien to the Heathrow robbery, said Heathrow again, that's wrong, in Mossack's mind. A few weeks later, police who called at Crockham House found Parry had fled. His prospects looked desperate, but he was not about to give up. Shortly afterwards, according to the Panamanian law firm's files, an audacious plan to seize back control of Faberian from the Met was hatched. Centre services were no longer of use as company administrators. Parry appointed a firm from Panama to replace them. These new administrators would not be as easily spooked by the attentions of UK police. Mossack Fonseca, meanwhile, took the role of legal advisors. You follow drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers. But you start to follow the money and you don't know where the fuck it's going to take you. Kenneth Noy went into hiding in Spain after the murder of Stephen Cameron. He was extradited back to the UK and given a life sentence in the year 2000. He was released on license in 2020. Tony Black was given six years for robbery. Michael Relton briefly became a supergrass before withdrawing his testimony without explanation and agreeing to accept a sentence of 12 years for money laundering. He lives somewhere in America with his wife. Gordon Parry was given 10 years for money laundering. On his release, he quietly retired to a nine-bedroom mansion in Kent. He still lives there with his wife. John Palmer was shot to death in 2015. Mickey McAvoy died in 2023 at the age of 71. Sid Fillory and Jonathan Reese turned Southern Investigations into a major conduit for information between the Metropolitan Police and Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. After a series of delays and false starts, Reese was again arrested for the murder of Daniel Morgan in 2008, and Fillory was tried for perverting the course of justice in that case. Both trials fell apart. Reese's role in the phone hacking scandal was exposed along with a major web of corruption, illegal activity, and bribery of Met police officers. The Met excluded huge amounts of evidence against Southern from its investigations into the phone hacking affair, and the phone hacking affair itself also went barely anywhere. Ray Adams was declared unfit for duty in April of 1993. 
That same month, 18-year-old college student Stephen Lawrence was stabbed to death in a racist attack in London. The Lawrence family grew suspicious that Adams, just like Detective Sergeant John Davidson, were secretly close to the family of David Norris, one of Stephen's killers, and was stonewalling the investigation. Clifford Norris, David's father, was a major drug trafficker who had at least John Davidson on his payroll. Ray Adams inexplicably remained in post until August of 1993. He later became head of security at NDS, which was a firm owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. Brian Boyce quit the force and became head of security for a merchant bank called Hill Samuel in the early 90s. He went on to work free on the Stephen Lawrence case, and he helped Michael Mansfield QC gather evidence against Stephen's killers and expose some aspects of Met corruption. The majority of the Brinks Matt Gold has never been found. Two crime firms in London are suspected of having sold off most of the remaining bullion and used the money to shore up their power bases. The Clerkenwell crime family, or the Adams family, and the Hunt syndicate, headed up by David Hunt. We will be discussing both of these firms more in episodes to come. Both of these firms were described in the Operation Tiberius report as being able to infiltrate the Met Police at will. They are also rumoured to be linked to Masonic lodges. David Hunt has been described in recent years as too big to fail by anonymous higher-ups in the Met Police. <laughs> 